0: Hey, everybody, you're tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. We're speaking today with Gordon Lamb, who's the author of a book called Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia. Welcome, Gordon. Hi, thanks, Steve. So a very interesting book about a band that I did not know a whole lot about. After reading it, I realized that there were kind of two stars in your book. There's Widespread Panic, of course. And then there's Athens, Georgia.
1: That's true. I would agree with you. There are definitely two stars in the book, both the band and the city, which is one of the reasons I'm so glad that both are immortalized in in the title of the book. You know, I like that they get, uh, you know, co-billing, so to speak.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now, are you an Athens native? I'm not. Um, I
1: moved here in the fall of 1989, right after high school, ostensibly to go to college. But um, if I'm being... You know, very honest, it was because of the
0: music scene. <laughs> and are you from Georgia?
1: No, I uh, I went to high school in Georgia. I moved around, you know, I wasn't like an army brat or anything like that, but I did move around some as, as a kid. I was born in Asheville, North Carolina. Hmm. Then um, as a young, young child, lived in the San Fernando Valley in California, a little town called Reseda, which is where Mm -hmm. the Karate Kid is from. Then lived in uh, Miami Beach, Florida, and then Marietta, Georgia for high school, and then Athens for most of my adult life.
0: So let's set the tone for your book and focus a little bit on Athens, Georgia, a quintessential college town on the surface and perhaps an unlikely source for such a groundbreaking music scene, isn't it?
1: I think about that question a lot. Going all the way back to, you know, even when the B 52s broke circa 1979, 1980, you know, news reports and stories would come out and be like, there's something in the water in Athens, Georgia. There's something going on, blah, blah. You know, on one hand, I would say that, yes, there is. There's always been something special about Athens music, and it is a very creative scene and continues to be. But I also think that scenes like this pop up or can pop up almost anywhere. They just need certain elements and certain catalysts. And the elements in Athens, Georgia, at least in the early scene, was that Athens was pretty remote. I mean, even though it's only about 70 miles or so from Atlanta, uh, it was only accessible by a very few amount of roads. It wasn't, you know, it was like the REM song, you can't get there from here. <laughs> and so there was no major highway that came into Athens. It wasn't like there was tons of traffic or anything like that. So it was, re- it was relatively remote. They had a great art school. Had exceedingly cheap rent, even even for you know decades ago. The rent here was, I would say, artificially suppressed. It was it was way below market value. You know, you could rent an apartment for you know a hundred bucks a month, or or split a house with people and pay seventy five bucks a month rent, things like that. And also in the late seventies, your entertainment options were limited to watching television, going to the movies, playing putt putt golf, or you know drinking beer. <laughs> if you weren't doing one of those four things. Uh, at any given time, you know, what else was there to do? You know, if you were into art, you made art. And a lot of times people in Athens, were they were just making art, but with music. And with musical instruments was another way of exploring creativity.
0: And definitely, even though it's 70 miles away, it's a world away from Atlanta, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was for a very long time. It, it's a little bit different now. But, you know, I'm speaking about, you know, 1980 and we're on the cusp of 2020. We're, you know, we're literally talking two generations ago.
0: Well, there's a 1987 film called Inside Out, Athens, Georgia. Yes, it kind of broke the story of the music scene, even though it's it's later, but it helped deliver uh, bands, you know, like B52s, REM, and Pylon, to a much bigger audience.
1: That movie came out actually when I was a I was a junior. No, I was a sophomore in high school, and when it finally came out on videotape, the DVDs didn't even exist. But when it finally came out on videotape, I got it on videotape, and I watched that movie obsessively. I mean, I could we, to this day, you could put Athens, Georgia, Inside Out on the like on the television, turn the sound all the way down, and I could quote it all the way through.
0: I remember that movie. Uh, We're up here in Boston, which has a pretty good music scene too.
1: Boston was a for years was a great friend to Athens bands.
0: And I remember when that movie came out, it was kind of discussed in hushed tones, you know, because it was still kind of underground. Some of that pop, even though they broke bigger, sure. But I recently, for this interview, I rewatched it in its entirety. It's, it's a very cool film. It's sometimes very strange. Do you think that's a representative picture of the scene at the time?
1: Well, as somebody that wasn't living here at the time, I can't say definitively whether or not it was 100% representative of the scene as it existed. But what I can say is that it's definitely representative of the Athens mythos, and, uh, and also the Athens ethos, because at the time, Athens still had what I like to call its kind of innate bohemian culture. And that culture was available to people because Athens was so inexpensive to live in. And I, but I can't overstate that enough of how affordable Athens was. I mean, even the people, even you know, the members of Pylon, you know, what they did, well, at least at least two of them did. They worked at a carpet factory out near Jefferson, like two shifts a week, and then was in a, in a band and making art the rest of the time. But it was like, you know, working, working 10, 15 hours a week at a part-time job was enough. I mean, you weren't living high on the hog, but it was enough to pay your rent and drink some beer and, and right. be in a band. The thing about Athens, Georgia Inside Out is I really do think it's beautifully filmed. Um, and it, it captures Athens at a time of year, uh, which is the fall and early winter. I just think is just beautiful in Athens. A lot of people really think of the South as being, you know, really sweaty and hot and, you know... 100% humidity on 100 degree days, and it is that way um, so much of the year. I just think Athens is just so beautiful in the fall. And to be honest with you, it probably has a lot to do with the way Athens is represented in that movie because that was my kind of first visual entree into what Athens even looked like. My first introduction uh, in the Athens music scene at all actually came a few years earlier when I was in, I would have been in like seventh grade. And Nickelodeon used to have this kind of teen talk show called Livewire. And it was hosted by a guy named Fred Newman. He would have bands come on. You know, it was, it was like talking about teen issues and stuff like that. But he would have bands come on and play. And I remember seeing, I believe I saw Motorhead on that show, but I'm not 100% sure that might have been on The Young Ones. But there was one time there was this band from Athens, Georgia named R.E.M. That was on there. That was the very first time I ever heard R.E.M. And uh, it was right after their album, Reckoning, had come out. And, I mean, I was just smitten. And that was it. I mean, I just happened to be watching Nickelodeon one day after school, unbeknownst to me then, but that really directed a large portion of my life.
0: Yeah, I saw them open, I think it was for Gang of Four with Chronic Town on that EP tour up here. I I think it was that tour. And I would guess that REM would be the first group that pops into most people's mind when they hear Athens, Georgia.
1: I would think so. Also, I don't know if that's so much the case anymore.
0: One of the things I noticed in, in rewatching the film, what struck me is there's a B-52s performance in there that is just insane. It, it's electric and much more cutting-edge than their records. And, you know, you talked about that kind of bohemian art culture, and I would say that those guys were probably the first purveyors of that kind of thing.
1: I would say that they were... Yeah, you know what? Actually, you're, you're probably really correct on that because there were other bands at the time... But there was nobody really doing what they did. That's one thing about the B-52s is that there's elements of calypso and surf rock and all kinds of things in their music, but it all sounds like the B-52s. Nobody listens to a B-52s record and says, oh, I hear, I'll hear a little Harry Belaponte in that. You know, it all sounds like them.
0: And back then, that was like nothing anybody had ever heard. I mean, it was just so revolutionary.
1: Yeah, it just, it just knocked everybody
0: out. Absolutely. I'd like to tell all of our listeners to search that out. I found it online to watch it because it really, really makes the case, you know, for this scene. And it puts forth some really interesting characters. And
1: Oh, absolutely. And talking about the B-52s and older performances and stuff, there's actually on YouTube live video from, I believe, 1978 or 79, them live in Atlanta. And they're going through their set. They're plowing through it. It's just electrifying. And what was remarkable to me is how well rehearsed the band was. Because when you hear these live versions from, you know, 1978, you know, before any of the records came out, the performances are almost note for note what the records sound like.
0: Yeah, and visually they're just stunning, as is Pylon. And I, I learned about oh, Pylon up here in Boston, oddly enough.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that's one of the bands that Boston was so kind to.
0: So one of the characters in your book is Ort Carlton, whom you call in your book the resident sage of Athens. Yes. I'm assuming, you know, he had a huge role in shaping this kind of unique culture in Athens. He's also in the movie.
1: He is in the movie. His full name is William Orton Carlton, and he goes by Ort and uh he grew up here in Athens and went to high school here in Athens and he has been just immersed in the Athens music scene. Um he's he's older he's older now, he's not as into it as he as he once was, but he has been immersed in the Athens music scene since the early seventies. He had a record store circa seventy-two called Ort's Oldies. He did a radio show called Ort's Oldies. And you know, this was when he was just like a really young guy. I mean, he was in his early twenties in the early seventies. But he is – when I call him the resident sage of Athens, I mean the man is in his encyclopedia. Um, you could be having a very casual conversation with him and talking about some small town you drove through in another state many years ago, and he'll be able to tell you the zip code of that town, things like that. One thing about Ort, like me watching this movie as a high school kid and seeing Ort in it, but I remember watching it thinking like, wow, that man is like 100 years old. Yeah. He was 36 when they filmed that movie. I'm older now by half than he was mm-hmm. when he you know, was filmed for that movie. He was quite a character, and he has um, just unbelievable collections of things.
0: So getting too Widespread Panic, I did not know they were from Athens. But, you know, seeing that movie, reading your book, it makes sense that there's this hippie, harmonious, adventurous vibe, and, you know, you talk about Bohemia. It makes sense that that would birth a band like Widespread Panic.
1: Mm-hmm. That's an entire scene that that movie doesn't explore. And I mean, you know, it's a, docu- it's a documentary. It can't cover everything. And certainly, and certainly there was some sour grapes amongst other bands and, and at the time, you know, that weren't featured in the movie. But uh, Athens has had a very, very rich folk music scene for decades. Sport Panic didn't exactly come out of that scene, but they did grow out of the singer-songwriter scene.
0: And then, how did they get into, you know, kind of the jam band thing? How how did that come about? I would have
1: to say it was pretty organic. It was kind of like being in the right place at the right time and people kind of all being loosely of the same mind, because the way White for Panic formed was John Bell was already performing, singer-songwriter, gigging multiple times a month, and he was on his way to being a very successful solo artist. And he met Mikey Hauser and was absolutely knocked out by Mikey's music, gave up his solo career, and was like, I want to make music with this guy. And so they formed the band with uh, Bassist Dave Schools, and boom, widespread panic was born
0: they played some of the biggest theaters down there which were what a couple thousand seats fairly early on in their career right
1: it took them a few years to get there but they did you know play the the georgia theater and um and then later on after the civic center was built it's called it's called the classic center they would play there and that's that was a a few thousand seater and no they started off playing pretty much everywhere i mean which is an ethos built by, or work ethic that was demonstrated earlier by R.E.M., who, uh, you know, like, R.E.M.'s a perfect example. They'd get on the road, and maybe their destination is to go play the rat in Boston, you know, or get written up in in the New York rocker or something. However, in between these cities, there's a whole lot of small towns with pizza parlors and delicatessens and coffee shops, and they would just play wherever they got a gig. White's Republic was the same way. They would gladly play your nightclub if you booked them, but they'll also play your frat party or they'll play your parking lot at your convenience store or, you know, wherever there was a gig.
0: That relentless touring, I don't know if it led to it, but they adopt kind of the Grateful Dead model of allowing fans to tape their shows and their fan base just soars through all that touring.
1: That's right. The whole taping phenomenon really did start with the Grateful Dead decades ago. And it's something that has been just part and parcel of the jam band scene the whole time it's existed and it certainly got another big shot in the arm with the technological improvements of the
0: 1990s you mean the one that killed the record industry
1: (laughs) well (laughs) well yeah
0: but you know that just it goes to show
1: but also just the just the availability of really lightweight portable you know digital recording devices
0: i was talking more about the internet and sharing but um
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I even mean um, a little bit before that, even before people had high speed Internet access and when people were still when people were still taping and, and trading tapes and all that. But no, but you're certainly right by. Oh, my gosh, by 2000, 2001. The, the horse was out of the barn
0: so to speak but you know like the Grateful Dead or the Allman Brothers or the other bands that did encourage taping or at least look the other way sure records are one thing but the live shows are a whole nother thing and they live on today even with you know kind of the dearth of a, a real music industry and that's right and so at the heart of your book is that the band wanted to thank their fans with a free show in Athens to celebrate their first official live album called Light fuse and getaway yes. And there's a funny bit early in your book where you state that among widespread panic fans, April 18th, which is the date of the show, 1998, is a day that, quote, just happened. Right. Things like that don't just happen, particularly when governments are involved, right?
1: They certainly do not.
0: And that's kind of
1: the – when I write that fans kind of thought that it just happened and that it was just some cool dudes putting on a free show and having a party and stuff – it's because of the nature of Whitesford Panic themselves. They were seen as these easygoing guys, and, you know, the scene really was, you know, it was it was hippies. You know, it was a free show. Everybody, everybody was going to hang out on the street, so it kind of seems like one of those things that, oh, hey, we're having a party, come on down. But it actually took quite a bit of doing, and it was very close several times to not happening at all.
0: And you break that down in great detail in your book, and one of the things I was amazed to read is that no one that you interviewed can recall whose idea it actually was.
1: That's right. I think there's two reasons for that. I think one is that, you know, it has been a very long time and memories fade and memories get altered and all that kind of stuff. But I also think it's everybody being gracious to each other. Nobody really wanting to say, no, it was my idea and I think they all kind of being a little gracious and and sharing the spotlight, if you will.
0: Yeah, and and, you know, there's a few theories in your book, but it seems that it points logically towards one of the band members or management who just kind of threw it out there and it kind of grew organically.
1: Yeah, that's the most logical thing to me, is that it was either uh, their booking agent Buck Williams or their manager at the time, Sam Lanier. After speaking with everybody and going through everything and just knowing the band themselves and the nature of the scene and everything, I can absolutely... See a situation where they're just having a band meeting, and somebody just throws it out. And it could have been anybody, and then and then somebody ran with it, which was Sam Lanier ran with it.
0: Do you know who came up with uh, what I think is a genius name, which is widespread panic in the streets for the event, and a, a nice little bit of branding there.
1: You know what? I really don't know because going back, it was referred to as panic in the streets. It was weird because it was officially billed as, like, the record release party for Light Fuse Get Away. And then it started colloquially being called Panic in the Streets, you know, but there wasn't any, like, posters made that says, like, Panic in the Street. As far as being a a reference point, But it is, it's great because, especially the way things wound up, it could have very well been an actual Panic in the Street.
0: I was going to say your book goes into that, and it definitely is a bit fortuitous, so. um...
1: Yeah, most definitely.
0: So the manager, Sam Lanier, he he pitches the idea to the Athens mayor at the time, Gweno Looney? Yes. She really was a supporter of the idea and played quite a role in making this happen, right?
1: She was the most vocal cheerleader for it. Without her, I don't think it would have happened.
0: One of the things you say, and there's a couple of great quotes throughout, but you say that Athens is, quote, a small town with a big heart and when excited, a big mouth. Yeah. Can you explain what it is you're referring to there?
1: When Athens gets excited about something, Athens really loves for its cool things to be local and small and unique to the community and – kind of like only ours but we also love to tell people about them <laughs> and be like oh you got to come to Athens and see this thing or you would love it if you lived here you should move here it's the same thing with this it's like even when this show was under wraps and just being negotiated and stuff one person tells another person tells another person and then all of a sudden everybody in town knows about this thing that's going on that is very loosely planned absolutely not approved and is on a shaky rail from the get-go yeah, the secret didn't last very long.
0: <laughs> I'm sure one of the uh, major concerns by the town was money. Yes, it was. The band and their label Capricorn, who was mm-hmm. the Almond Brothers band for a long time, yes, picked up most of that cost, didn't they?
1: They did. All told, the band itself spent about a hundred thousand dollars. It cost them money to do to do the show because Capricorn did pay a certain amount of money from like a promotional budget. Some of that was put up by the label free and clear, some of it was charged back to the band, which was very standard for record contracts.
0: Do you know in the end, what was the the town's financial responsibility? The town's financial
1: responsibility was zero.
0: Oh, they didn't pay anything, huh?
1: Their cost was zero. I mean, their liability, there was no unpaid bills. Everything was covered. The actual town's liability was very, very, very minimal. Oh, I can't recall right off the top of my head right now. I know it's in the book, though. (laughs) Um, Okay, here we go. I can actually read from the book right now. When the final costs of the city were tallied up in the next month, they totaled $55,148.55. That amount didn't include, of course, widespread panic's expense for staging lights and electrical improvements. But it did mean that all city bills were paid in full and that Clark County was made whole. So that was the city's bill, but the city didn't pay that. That was billed to the band.
0: So there is a lot of bickering and pushing and pulling going on in Athens at the time. And, and like you said, yeah. it was, you know, sometimes didn't look like it was going to happen out of the blue Macon, Georgia, who we mentioned is the home of the Allman Brothers. Capricorn records suddenly drop in and say, we'll pick up the whole tab to have panic play right. at Macon, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Macon
1: was one of the first towns outside of Athens to really latch on to widespread panic. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Whiteside Panic now plays its traditional New Year's Eve shows in Atlanta at the Fox Theater, but for years they played them at the Macon City Auditorium. Macon is – oh, let me see how far away it is. I go to Macon all the time. Macon is – just about 75 miles or so from Athens, and so it's very easy to get to. And it's if you're an Athens band you want to play in Macon, it's very easy to get to. You can do it all in one night. It's like it's it's easier for me to drive to Macon than it is to Atlanta. The the person that called up and said Macon take care of it, Macon will pay the bills. That was the then mayor Jim Marshall. He was just very enthusiastic about it. And, you know, in the book, you'll see that the, you know, the town council and everything in Athens was pushing back really, really hard against it until they found out somebody else wanted it. And then they decided it all worked together.
2: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. We're speaking with
0: Gordon Lamb, who's the author of *Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia*. And one of the real concerns was, given the the big mouth that you say that uh, Athens could have, is the mm-hmm. is how many people would show up. You know, I'm sure it spread through the fans across the country like wildfire. And what were the original projections?
1: The original projections were between ten and twenty thousand people, which was. To be sure, a huge crowd, but it was reasonable considering the amount of touring that the band had done, their kind of informational reach, like how many fans they could reach in a short amount of time via newsletter. We should keep in mind that this concert was first proposed in January and happened in April. So this all came about very, very, very quickly. As news of the show started spreading, the information that the band's management could gather, you know, just via fan message boards and letters to the band and, and phone calls and things like that, they started going up. And from an, an original projection between ten and 20,000 people, they thought, oh, man, you know, we might, we might have 50,000 people at this. And then it's like, we might have 60,000 people at this. <laughs> And then as it winds up, there was approximately 100,000 people.
0: Holy up. cow. And I think you wrote that that's half the population of Athens, right?
1: According to the 2000 census, the population of Athens was 100,266 people.
0: Wow, so it doubled, really.
1: So two years earlier, that many people were at this show in the streets.
0: So along with those kind of crowds comes, uh, you know, scarcity of resources, um, you know, hotel rooms, booze, food, and then, of course, an abundance of trash and its removal. How did all that play out?
1: You know, this was the very first time anything like this had ever happened in Athens. Nobody really knew how to prepare for it because— you know, we'd had street festivals certainly going back to the 18, 1800s, you know, street fairs and things like that. We're certainly no stranger to, you know, gigantic football crowds. But something like this, nobody really knew how to prepare. And so, you know, restaurants stocked up on food as much as they could. Bars stocked beer and liquor to what they thought it was going to be. But the demand was just absolutely overwhelming. You know, by the time that crowd was all here and all kind of packed on a Washington street. I mean you couldn't move. It was shoulder to shoulder. It was really something else. Hotels had been booked for other events months and months in advance and there was multiple other events not only in Athens but in the general area that same weekend. So you're already starting you started starting with a limited resource and then it just became even more limited.
0: Did the town actually run out of beer?
1: A lot of bars did. They absolutely did. Restaurants ran out of food. Hotels ran out of rooms, certainly. It was something.
0: You mentioned uh, just now, and it's one of the more ironic things, is that Athens regularly deals with huge college football crowds every year. That's right. But it seems like, you know, kind of a similar size crowd of of hippies, for lack of Mm -hmm. a better word, kind of threw them off their game. It did. You know?
1: It did. It definitely did. Football crowds are, for better or worse, they're a known quantity. Also, immediately following the football game, you're going to have tens of thousands of people that actually just leave town. (laughs) For the most part, football crowds, at least the UGA fans, they're familiar with Athens. They know the area. A lot of times they make accommodations by staying with friends in town, things like that. They have resources that weren't available to just tens of thousands of absolute total strangers that have never – some of which have never been to the south at all, certainly never been to Athens, don't know – hide nor hair they literally just got in a car and started driving here so it was a different phenomenon and also to be you know to be entirely fair Athens is very used to you know the scene of the kind of good old boy drinking whiskey going to a football game the cops know how to deal with that when you're talking about tens of thousands of hippies just showing up in town it was just a it was a thing that they had never dealt with and so it, it spooked them a good amount
0: And there were lots of weird rumors floating around as the event drew closer. And one that blew my mind was about the police horses.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. A rumor went around, a rumor had made its way to the Athens Clark County police, that there was some people that were planning on dosing the police horses with LSD. (laughs) At that time, Athens Clark County did have a mounted patrol, They they don't anymore. But, you know, you go to the police station, they don't have horses stabled there. You know, they're stabled elsewhere. And so but the police did, they demanded that uh widespread panic provide all new feet, brand new feed for the horses, and they did. And wow. that's the that's the only case that I've ever heard of where a rock band had to provide Um, horse feed for the local police department. That's a true story. And uh, I heard that story first as a rumor, and it was confirmed by Basis Dave Schools.
0: Wow. And, you know, none of these issues, though, loomed over the event more than one, which you talk about early on, and it carries through almost your entire book. And that's a local wedding. That's right. Can you fill out our listeners in? Sure. Uh,
1: well, like I was like I was saying, you know, people had made plans for this weekend months, months, sometimes years in advance. Um, well, in the case of the wedding, it was it was easily a year in advance. Where the wedding happened was about two blocks away from where the stage was set up. Oby Dupree, the mother of the bride has been painted in this story as being a real busybody and not pleased with anybody and demanding that the band cancel the show and that just absolutely was not the case she really really wanted everybody to work together and which they ultimately did and the band was very very gracious towards her and towards the couple and everything but it was it was really really something else because both the bride and the groom had family roots going back you know. A hundred years in Athens, both culturally and industrially, and so it was this. I won't say it was like a like a royal wedding, but it was a it was a wedding between two people from two of Athens' oldest. You know, most well-known families getting married two blocks down the street from this historic music event happening in Athens. The, the amount of history made on that day was was just really incredible.
0: According to your book, it seemed to have, if not a storybook ending, then certainly a one of a kind ending.
1: Oh, very much. The band had made the crowd aware that the wedding was happening inside the church and asked them to please be quiet, let the ceremony happen, and don't make any noise. You know, they had all their relatives there. You know, they had their elderly grandparents and people from you know across the country tree that were there they didn't know anything about what was going on this weird hippie show in the street and so the fans were very very respectful of the wedding and they were quiet outside the church and as soon as those church doors opened up and the and the wedding party walked outside the crowd just erupted in cheers for them and congratulations and all that very cool very it was really cool it's such an it's such a really neat Athens thing to happen
0: so the show happens and uh it's all relatively peaceful for a crowd of that yep. size and You know, Mother Nature offers up some rain at the end to help disperse the crowd. Um, Was the event a success?
1: I would consider it a success. By the skin of its teeth, a success. (laughs) Yes, I I would absolutely consider it a success. And even in the book, Dave Schools is quoted, you know, saying, you know, we felt like we got away with something. Like, it could have gone really, really badly, but it went great.
0: Do you know where this show, is? it's rather infamous on the internet and things like that, but where it ranks in terms of music to its fans rather than the event, but musically speaking?
1: You know, I really don't. Most of the conversations surrounding this show actually has very little to do with the performance. I mean, the performance was great. Most of the memories and the excitement, I'll say the word again, mythos of this event, really has to do with the event itself. It's not that the music was secondary, because the music is why we were all there. I I really couldn't tell you. I really don't know where where it ranks musically with, you know, perhaps other live shows that people have seen or or anything like that. I really don't know.
0: Was this the greatest thing to ever happen to Athens? You wrote in your book that it fundamentally changed Athens. How so?
1: It did. You know, because like something can be grand but disastrous. Um, or something mm-hmm. that can be great and wonderful. I hesitate to say it was the greatest thing to ever happen to Athens, but I do think it was a wonderful thing to happen. And when I when I say that it fundamentally changed Athens, what I mean is it changed the way Athens saw itself in terms of what it could do and how it could work together and how it could pull things off. I think it really did plant the seed in a lot of people's minds that, hey, this is the type of event that can happen here. We have a annual music festival here. It's run by an organization called AthFest Educates, um, which is a nonprofit now that supports music programs in local schools. But it started off as just an Athens music festival. It had its very first year in 1997, and it was very small. It was on the street, uh, just in front of the courthouse, and... um, and now that festival takes place where Widespread Panic set up their stage. They, widespread Panic was, was the first group to set up a stage down there at the that end of Washington Street. And now we think of street festivals in Athens, even when they have, you know, five, eight thousand people at them. We think of them as very normal. But at the time, it was very, very weird. It was very bizarre to have that many people um just hanging around, doing something. It was it was really radical and uh Athens doesn't think of itself that way anymore. It knows that it can do these things. Now, I don't think that there will ever 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 be another event like widespread panic playing on the streets like that. Because like I said, the band feels like they got away with something. After all was said and done, of course there was you know reports and everything about what could have been done better and you know who should have done what differently and all of that kind of stuff. The culture is just very different now. Also, uh, as far as what what people expect from a festival type atmosphere, it's neither bad nor good. My feelings about it fundamentally changing Athens are actually kind of are actually kind of neutral.
0: I'll use your word here, and uh, this will be our last sure. question for you. Do you think this was the grandest thing, not the greatest, but the grandest thing to ever happen to widespread panic and its fans? Looking back, how the band feels about that gig?
1: The band remembers it very fondly. And they're very glad that they did it. But that said, White Spirit you know, is a touring band. And they were in Europe on tour when most of this was being planned. They weren't in town, going through all this controversy and stuff. That was their label and management that dealt with all that. As soon as this show was over, and Athens is basking in the afterglow of it, and and everybody's patting each other on the back, White Panic was back on the road. They were on their way to Myrtle Beach to play Three Nights at the House of Blues, celebrating the release of the same album. They were already back on the road. They remember it fondly, but they've played literally thousands of shows since then to gigantic crowds. They... Do an event called Panic on the Playa, you know, where they play to 75,000 people on a beach every year. I do think they have really, really fond memories of it, but they've had, as a band, they've experienced similar things multiple times since then. That said, as far as grandness goes, I think it's one of the grandest things that ever happened to Widespread Panic because it happened in Athens. If their very first show, where they ever played to 100,000 people, had happened, you know, on a beach or in a stadium or something like that, it would not have been a special. It wouldn't have been in their hometown. It wouldn't have been two blocks from the Georgia Theater, you know, where they came up. It wouldn't have been three blocks, you know, from the Uptown Lounge, where they really cut their teeth. And that's one interesting thing about the what I call like the geography of the event is their stage for Panic in the Streets happened at the corner of Washington and Pulaski Street. Two blocks up on Washington, you make a right turn, there's the Georgia Theater. Two and a half blocks up on Washington Street is where the Uptown Lounge was. It's almost as if they evolved walking down the street. Wow. Their entire evolution happened within three blocks of itself.
0: That's amazing. That's an amazing perspective. Well, Gordon Lamb, your book is Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia. It's a really good read. It's a little bit of geography. You got a little bit of Southern culture. You got what happens to plan these massive events. You got some music. You got some crazy fans. And it's a great read. So uh, I'd like to thank you for being on and talking with us.
1: I thank you for reading and, and talking to me. Really appreciate it.
0: If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one of a kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive and All Music Books podcast.